Welcome to Unaddiction, the podcast. My name is Dr. Nzinga Harrison. I'm a board-certified psychiatrist with a specialty in addiction medicine and co-founder and chief medical officer of Eleanor Health. On this podcast, we explore the paths that can lead to addiction and the infinite paths that can lead to recovery. Our guests are sharing their own experiences, the tools that have helped them along the way, and the formulas that allow them to thrive in recovery one day at a time. I am so excited to tell you about my book, Unaddiction, Six Mind-Changing Conversations That Could Save a Life, is now available from Union Square and Company or wherever books are sold. Anna Marie Cox is a political columnist for the New Republic and a culture critic whose writing has appeared in Sports Illustrated, The New York Times, NBC.com, and The Cut, where she wrote a column called Sober Questioning. Her upcoming memoir, Just Like Your Mother, is an account of addiction, recovery, and intergenerational trauma, which seeks to answer the question, why did my mother die of her addiction, but I was able to get sober? In this episode, we walk through her adverse childhood experiences, also known as ACEs, and mental health difficulties, and how those can put any of us at risk for developing addiction. Such an honest and vulnerable conversation. I hope it'll touch you the way it touched me. Yes. So I have an executive coach and we're talking about um, shoulds really come out of like, you decide the destination is X. And then when you're on a journey, it becomes clear to you, you're actually headed to Y. You're like, should, 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 should. And he's like, when reality, this is the quote from my executive coach, in Zynga, it ain't never X, okay? (laughs) And now this is my mantra. It ain't never X, okay? I think there's a lot of truth to that. What felt true in the conversation I was having with my friend, because we were talking about both being CPTSD Mm -hmm. Um, survivors Mm -hmm. is there's a lot of unworthiness yes that comes with that and I think for her and for me should is just always that version of ourselves we think we need to be in order Mm -hmm. to be loved and accepted yeah and so every time we should, it's it's like beating ourselves up just mm-hmm. a little bit. And also mm-hmm. I've discovered for me, it's a way of setting myself up to not do stuff and to mm. set and to perhaps create too many things that I think I should do. I've been doing a lot of healing work lately. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things I've realized is that I've spent a lot of my life preparing and planning and goal setting Mm -hmm. and not so much doing or accepting or resting. It's a bit of a um, always ahead of the moment as compared to in the moment mindfulness Um, and sounds like you're making a transition. Okay. So I'm going to use this as a transition to officially jump us into this episode Um, Because this is exactly where I want to go with it. And I think this is exactly why we have the podcast to help people understand what different journeys to recovery look like, what the formula that you're working. And it sounds like part of your formula is getting to that being in this moment without judgment 
which is not easy, right? So can we just start with, tell us who you are. This is like the most, this is the most I'm a psychiatrist intro question. Tell me who (laughs) you are and how you came to be. Oh my God. I know. Is this so psychiatry? No, I teach interviewing classes in journalism programs every once in a while. And, and you're like, I don't ever them, ask a question like that. No, my cheat code <laughs> is ask them how they came to be the person <gasps> they are. If you if you run into a brick wall with somebody and they're like shutting down or they won't answer or your questions seem off or whatever, sometimes how did you become the person that you are yeah. is a way of, because there's no simple answer. Okay. So Tell me. Oh, tell me who I am. I've avoided the question. That's all um, right. Let's bring I know. Us back I'm, around. I'm, a, I'm the adult child of an alcoholic. I'm really good mm. at avoiding people seeing me. Mm-hmm. Um, I am Anna Marie Cox. Mm-hmm. I am a journalist and writer and podcaster. And I feel comfortable putting those things first, even though they're what I do for money, mm. because they are very essential to who I am. Ooh, okay. I want to click uh, into that for sure. I love stories. I love hearing other people's stories. I love telling my story. Mm. I love um, my favorite thing about teaching. I also teach about both teaching and journalism, this is going to be another parallel to psychology, is when you see that you've helped someone understand something. Mm -hmm. Like that light in a student's eyes, when you've helped them kind of like get to that click Mm -hmm. and they understand something they didn't understand before Mm -hmm. is the most satisfying thing that there is second to that same feeling can come from writing sometimes it doesn't come from like in writing it's usually when i know that i've hit it but it's a more interior thing because i haven't had feedback yet but like when i know i've like yeah i was almost coming back to your second thing um i was gonna say i can imagine seeing that light is also part of what's rewarding about telling your story Yes. And I want to start there Here because, yep, this is Unaddiction, the podcast. And one of our main goals is to uncover the conversations we need to be having. People can be so afraid because of stigma, um, because of the things we think we know. People can be so afraid of telling their story, but the freedom and the joy of telling your story and seeing your story turn the light on behind someone else's eyes, I think is incredible. Is that part of what you experience when you tell your story? Yeah. And it reminds me, you know, before I am any of those things, I am an alcoholic in recovery. Mm -hmm. Um, And recovery is the center or has to be, even when I don't realize it's the center of my life, even when my focus has shifted, if that makes any sense at all, mm-hmm. it, it is the center of my life mm-hmm. um, because without my sobriety, I, in my connection to my higher power, which I have, I have a higher power. It's been mm-hmm. helpful to me. I know different people, different things. 
Um, but I believe that I'm having uh, that my spiritual connection, my spiritual well-being is the center of who I am and is the thing that allows me to do all the other things. Mm-hmm. Um, because without it, you know, I lived for 38 years vamping, you know, like, I guess, or you could put it in psychological terms, like survival mode, just mm-hmm. trying to get by. Yeah. Just like trying to, I didn't get a lot of good instruction as a kid, you know, a lot of good patterns. So I was just like, I, you know, and perfectionism and overachieving were a big part of that. And drinking and using drugs to some extent, also a big part of that. Yeah. And um, that was not sustainable for me. Mm-hmm. And um, I also uh, have bipolar disorder, too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, it's bad two combination. as in also or bipolar no, disorder type bipolar two? bipolar disorder two, type two. Okay. Um, and that's a part of my story. Uh in fact, you can talk more about it. It's actually a bigger part of my story than I kind of realized. Um, my, my bottom as an alcoholic was a pretty serious suicide attempt. Mm. And that is the thing that reminds me that unless I have my spiritual house in order, as they say, mm-hmm. in AA, or unless I maintain my connection to my higher power or mm-hmm. spirit of the universe or higher self or mm-hmm. you know whatever term you want to use um i will die mm. the stakes are the highest one way or another yep i either drink myself to death like my mom did or i will become so unhappy and desperate and sad and lonely and hopeless i might take my own life so it's a really good, I sometimes say I feel sorry for normal folks because they don't have to have a spiritual life. They can just like get along without it. And I cannot. My life depends on having some sort of space in my life for a connection to something greater than myself. And maybe that gets us to the talking about bipolar disorder. So um, I've been sober for 12 years. Congratulations. 12 years and six months and two days. Okay. Because my belly button birthday is six months away from my sobriety date. So I am always very aware of the six month, the half mark. Uh-huh. And uh, I took to AA like it was, you know – um, I just loved it. I, I fell in love. I've, I'd been in, out, in and out before, but then I went to treatment and I was really resistant at first. And then I kind of made a deal with myself, which is like, I have not been, this has not, I have not come up with something and this seems to work for some people. And so I'll give it a shot. And because I am a type A perfectionist overachieving person, I kind of made a deal with myself that I would do it like they said. Perfectly. And if it didn't work, I can always drink or kill myself. It's a, de- it's a deal. Like, I have to give it a real shot. Sort of like your parents saying, like, take a bite. And if you don't like it, then you can, you know, not eat it. But you have to, like, have to try. You have to be honest. And so I did the things that they said. And 
you know, even when it came to praying, I remember telling my counselor, like, I don't really, this feels really dumb. Mm. <laughs> Cause I'm not sure what I believe. And I don't think anyone is listening. And she was like, doesn't matter. Do it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found a reading not then, but I think later that pointed out something that's been important to me since, which is we don't, if you believe in a higher power, but even if you don't, praying is not about letting the higher power know what you want. If it's a higher power, if it's all-knowing, omnipotent, that thing already knows. We pray to hear ourselves ask. Hmm. And I think it's a good gut check on what I'm asking for. Hmm. Is it something I want or something I need? Is it selfish? Um, And it's also a form of meditation. So even if you don't believe, like, it's a good way of being reminded of kind of the Buddhist, like, you are powerless. Mm -hmm. You are a thing. You are a person who wants things. But the universe has different ideas sometimes. Um, And so whatever. I, I loved AA. It, I stayed sober. So that was, that's sort of what happened is I did what they said and I stayed sober and I didn't hate myself. So I kept doing it. And also AA is, um, you know, for, again, type A person. I liked knowing that I was doing something extra, like I'm ex- I'm an extra person, right? So for me, like AA, like I always go to meetings. I always mm-hmm. have service position. I always have a sponsor. Like I do the deal, as mm-hmm. they say. Mm-hmm. And, you know, part of that is because I do believe that my life is on the line. And part of that, I think, over the years became, I started to think of sobriety as a thing that I did, as a thing I was rewarded with for doing AA perfectly. Mm. Even 12 years later, you're still working your AA program. And the question I wanted to ask was, are you doing it perfectly? So here's where this is recent news and revelations for me. Uh huh. Um, you know, I said all the right things in meetings there, but for the grace of God, go I. Like you know, one day at a time. And I, I, it's not like I didn't believe those things, but I do believe that, um, like when someone would share that they relapsed, there was a part of me that was like, well, you're not working as good a program as I am. You know, like. Sorry, that's terrible. I'm an alcoholic <laughs> well, that's on too. You. But should have done it better. Should have done it better. Right. Um, right. And then last month, I had a manic episode. The first one I've had since I got sober. And I will not get into why it happened because part of what I've come to realize is it doesn't matter. Um, and also, I'll never really know. Mm. I have suspicions. It has to do with the meds and you know, other stuff, but okay. what I had to come, am coming to accept is I thought about my mental illness kind of the same way, which is that if I take care of it perfectly, then I will never have another manic episode. I'm kind of like, I still get depressed, but in that, as you know, like depression is always a bigger problem for people with bipolar disorder. Yeah. And I've had treatment resistant depression but I haven't had a manic. When I haven't had a full manic episode. I've had times where I felt walking up the curve, but not all the way there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I always also know what to do, like exercise more, eat right, mm-hmm. sleep, you know, mm-hmm. meditate. And I really thought I was managing my bipolar disorder in kind of the same way I was managing my mm-hmm. addiction, which is like, all right, perfectly, uh, good job. 
you know? Yeah. Way to go. Like, you're going to be set. You're never going to relapse. You're never going to have a manic, you know, like, manic episode. And then I had one. And can you just tell the listeners, everyone may not know what it's like to have a manic episode, if you're if you're comfortable with it, what it was like for you? Oh, God, it's hard to describe. And if you're not comfortable, I can try because business. I want people to know it's you are not yourself. It is and you can interject with your knowledge, but it's kind of like being psychotic. Mm-hmm. It's it is not my personality. It is a version of me. But even I found myself saying and doing things that like I was angrier and more self-pitying and more impulsive and like bolder. Mm -hmm. And I inside I was there was a part of me that was like, what the fuck? Like, what is going on? Mm -hmm. on? Like, Uh this is not you. Like. And other people also notice this is not you. Like, Well, yeah, because part of it, I actually it was a more extreme manic episode than I've ever had. I think because I wasn't drinking. I think because. There was no alcohol to like. Oh, to put a lid on it. Put a lid on it. Uh huh. So like, I had times my my thoughts were racing so fast I could barely speak. Like, mm. um, and that also had never really happened to that degree. And it is, mm-hmm. it is. I remember having kind of a thought within a thought, which is that if this doesn't stop, I will be great. I will mm-hmm. lose it. I, I will lose my mind. I will never come mm-hmm. back. Mm-hmm. I will not be able to function in the world. Mm-hmm. And like there are parts of it, there are parts of it I don't remember, you know? Um, I kind of lost like a week and a half, two weeks in my life. Um, I hurt some people with my actions. Just not being, people trying to help and me pushing away and like being not graceful about it and being then being self like asking for help, then rejecting it, then mm-hmm. acting out. Then I have told people I didn't have sex with anyone, I didn't overspend, and I didn't drink. So all in all, it's a win. <laughs> Those would be classic manic symptoms, if right? You had. So didn't do any of that, and I had a lot of. I mean, I have you know created a life where I had a lot of like good safety net stuff you know, around me. Um, I kept in touch with my therapist. I kept in touch with my psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think for a manic episode, I handled it kind of the best case you can, Mm -hmm. but it happened and I was powerless to not have it happen. And I'm realizing, you know, a few things. One of them is that I thought I had, accepted my diagnoses in the same way that I'd accepted my addiction and alcoholism in that, you know, it's just a part of me. It's who I am, not ashamed. Yeah. I don't think I'd fully like accept it. Yeah. Because after you had the manic episode, did you feel shame or what brought you to this like realization? I have not actually accepted this. As, had, I felt a lot of shame. I, and the, as, as an illness I have. Yeah. I felt a lot of shame. And, um, you know, the damage I did to my relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, for me, has underscored, well, for one thing, it felt a lot like a relapse. I'm treating it a little bit like a relapse in the way that I think about it and the way that I'm handling it. Like, I've kind of been going to more meetings. I've been 
drawing on the resources of my friends who are also sober and people mm-hmm. who've been sober longer than I am. And much like with a relapse, I am trying to not go around on an apology tour and instead just get better. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's what people want for me. As much as I, w- I would like to be forgiven, that's what I would like. <laughs> I would like people to tell me it's okay, we understand, but I can't control that. Yeah. And I think it's exactly right to look at it as a relapse because that's what it was. So in medicine, when we have chronic conditions, we call them relapsing yeah. and remitting. Yeah. Meaning when you're not having symptoms of that illness, it's in remission. And when symptoms of that illness recur, like you said, can be brought on by any number of biological, psychological life stressors, all sorts of things. That is a relapse. And so like one of my soapboxes is that people don't relapse. Illnesses relapse. And one of the things I love about AA and NA is this concept of learning from the relapse. What do I take from this that I can learn that either helps me prevent the next one or make the next one shorter or decrease the severity of the next one or understand what contributed to it? And so I think approaching it that way with that learning and then I also think you said what I would want is for people to forgive me. I think there's some self-forgiveness yeah. work here too. Well, one of the things I love about AA, and I i mean, I genuinely, it's just, a, I mean, there are so many flaws, huge flaws, you know, it started by two rich white guys and that is its legacy, right? Like it's built, it's baked in and it's going to take years and years and years of work to unbake that, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's possible, but- I've, and I think unbaking is in progress. Yeah, I do too. I've seen it. Yeah. I have seen it. Um, For sure. I have seen uh, meetings that are people of color specific meetings. So we're women's meetings. So we're queer meetings. So we're men's meetings. Young people meetings. So yeah, you know what? I'm loving it. You know what? Like. That's right. Yeah. You don't have to kick people off the island, but right. it is important to have safe spaces. Right. And so like. And this is actually the premise of AA is a safe right. space. So. Women who might feel comfortable having a first step meeting with this man who feels like he might drink today. Let's do it. You guys go have your first step meeting. That's right. And we will continue with our women's meeting. That's right. You know, that's right. Uh, both and. Yeah, both and. Anyway, so, um, yeah, I, it, in, you know, uh, I just think I have a lot of humility. I, or I should say, I hope I have a lot more humility about how my program is not perfect. And the reason I haven't relapsed, well, for me, has to do with grace from the universe. So let's go, let's go there, Anna Marie, because what I really want people to hear, I think there are so many podcasts about the devastation of addiction, and we have to have that conversation. And I want this one to literally be giving people ideas. Everybody's formula is not for you. But there might be a piece of this formula. There might be a piece of that person's formula. There might be a piece of that person's formula that comes together to make your formula. And so I would love to spend time on the universe and spirituality as part of your formula. How does it show up in your life every day? And how do you 
that was kind of like a passive question. I want to be like active about it. How do you make sure it's showing up in your life every day? So it's changed. I think it shows up every day, whether or not I acknowledge it. Okay. Um, and again, that's sort of what has changed because of this, this manic episode, I think, is that, you know, I thought I was keeping myself sober by doing all this great work. <laughs> but you know what? There have been times in my in the past 12 years where I skipped meetings. There have been times when I haven't had a sponsor. There have been times when I haven't had sponsees. There have been times that I like blew off, you know, whatever. And also there have been times probably when everything came together and lined up in a way that I might have had a drink. Mm-hmm. That I was having a bad day and I was traveling and airports used to be a thing for me and uh-huh. the smell came and I could have done it. There's like this far away. Yep. And the universe stepped in. And that's what's kept me sober. I can keep myself sober every, on a day-to-day basis. I do believe that. <laughs> but I haven't kept myself sober for 12 years. And this is all I've been joking that this is like a very complicated version of the when there was one set of footprints, that's when I was carrying you. <laughs> yeah. No, for real. Which first of all is like, when I was a kid, my mom used to read that poem to us and we actually yeah. had it on the wall with the one set of footprints. It's a good one. And the two set of first, it's a good one. It just yeah. it stands and the so test of time. Basically, like that's kind of where I feel like I'm, I've, it's dawning on me and I'm still kind of processing and accepting it is that, yeah. that my higher power, and I will use the word God, God's grace has carried me a lot more than I realized. Yeah. Why does it make you teary? Because I do believe in infinite forgiveness. And, mm-hmm. you know, I happen to be a Christian. and But one of the reasons I'm a Christian is I was in recovery first. And the story of Jesus, like, blows me away. Mm. The idea of redemption, just, it's yours. Have mm-hmm. it here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. You are forgiven you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to say anything. I have just given yeah. you, the universe has just presented you with this eternal forgiveness, unconditional love, and it is yours to accept. All you have to do is accept it. And also, like, I'm kind of a C.S. Lewis Christian. I don't think that people who don't know about Christianity, like, I'm not a hell person. <laughs> And I'm not a person who thinks you have to be a Christian to accept this grace and goodness. Like, I think that it literally is for everyone. I think it is Mm -hmm. to say, like, the metaphor here is, you know, someone died for our sins. But what it means is just this infinite grace. Infinite. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes I forget that I I have that. That it is mine if I want it. It is yours. Yes. And that I've been given it and used it sometimes even without knowing it. Mm. And that's the footprints thing, right? It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And I think especially, I heard you mention CPTSD. Your mom died of alcoholism. I'm so sorry to hear about that. I think all of the ways we make people with addiction feel like that grace is not theirs. Yeah. All of the ways we make people with addiction feel like they don't deserve that grace. They don't hold the same value as other people that don't have bipolar disorder, that don't have alcohol use disorder. They don't 
whatever. I can't come up with this next sentence, but it is always like, you don't, you don't, right? People with, you know, uh, you know, sexual harms in their history, people who have done those things, because AA is full of people who at one point or another were either preyed upon or were predators. But grace is for everyone. Like grace and you can use whatever, like I know people, you know, I'm very also aware that Christianity has caused a lot of harm over (laughs) to people. And so I really try to be generous with the words that I use around this. Um, Mm -hmm. And you can kind of come up with whatever creative ways you want, but I believe the universe existence life, like that it is, there is no, there, no one is holding a grudge against us except us. Mm, wait, say that again for me, Anna Marie. I felt that in my soul. No one is holding a grudge against us except us. I am the only person mm. holding a grudge against me. Mm. The universe, you could even think of it as an uncaring universe if you want, right? But I think of it as a benevolent universe, a higher power, a spirit, a, something beyond my understanding. And that that is grace. That is just there. That is, again, there whether I know it or not, whether I want it or not. Yes. But the joy of recovery is knowing it. Mm-hmm. And I get to know that. I get to know that. So, so earlier in my recovery, I think I was more aware of this. I used to tell this story and I've now like, oh yeah, that story, which is that um, I am so fortunate to be in recovery and to experience that grace because other people have miracles in their lives. You know, a, a time when they almost got sick, but didn't. A time when, mm-hmm. you know, the bus driver p- braked. <laughs> <laughs> in, mm-hmm. it, for the light just in time, you know, a, a child, yeah. you know, um, born healthy and not unhealthy, whatever. Like, I do believe like everyone has kind of miracles in their lives. I know what my miracle is. Mm-hmm. My miracle is that I'm sober today. Mm, my miracle is that I'm forgiven. Mm. And I get to know that. And other people, they can know it. You know, like that's what gratitude, practicing gratitude is. And also practice of meditation, practice of mindfulness. That is a way of getting to know what I think your miracles are. Yeah. But, you know, I have a real like, I have a real good one. And now I guess my experience with this bipolar thing is actually what I should have meant it to do is I have a miracle every day, even if I didn't stay sober. That's what I was thinking about, Anna Marie, because even when you said airports used to be a thing. Right. It used to be a trigger and there was a stressful day right. and you're away from home and you're traveling. You don't have your support system and the smell comes that you didn't drink that day is a miracle. We tend to think of miracles as having to be these big, humongous things. Those are the ones we can recognize. Well, that is a big, humongous thing. <laughs> exactly. Every single yeah. day, these big, humongous things are happening for us. Well, if you think about it, existence is a miracle, right? Like, so even if I did drink, I got a miracle. Um, and that's the thing that I love that person. And that's the thing that I think has been missing from my recovery and been missing, been a missing piece of the humility that I want to practice is that sobriety isn't the miracle. I mean, it is a miracle, mm. mm-hmm. but it's not the only one I get. Mm. Like, Perhaps even there's an infinite number of miracles. Maybe I, I used to say I'm lucky because I get to know what my miracle is, but there's no way of knowing really how many miracles I have today. Yeah. 
this is this is the point of the podcast that it's so funny. One of the things I say is like there are an infinite number of paths to addiction. And so there are an infinite number of paths to recovery. And this is you used those exact words. There are an infinite number of miracles, right? And so this is what I want from the listeners. It's like if this is crawling inside your spirit and feels like a warm blanket. Take this as part of your formula. If it's not, that is perfectly fine. You're like, some of it, not all of it. Take some of it. Take what you need and leave the rest is what we say in AA. Take what you need and leave I, I'm, the so, rest. I can be kind of defensive about AA because I do love it so much. And I do feel like there's a lot of grace built into it for people that have problems with it. Uh-huh. I will just take what you need and leave the rest. Even if that means like, you know, saying fuck AA, fine. You know, like it doesn't have to be yours, right? Like AA doesn't have to be yours, but find something that is yours. That's the that's I the do point. believe that some kind of meditative or spiritual practice is pretty essential to recovery. I actually say I've I've boiled it down. My theory, community service reflection. Mm-hmm. Okay. Click us in. Can't get sober alone. We are pack animals. And you need other people to share the load. You need to hear other people's stories. You need to share your story. So that's the community piece, right? Like we meet together and we forgive each other when we can't forgive ourselves. We love each other when we can't love ourselves. I love all 12-step programs. I'm also in adult children of alcoholics, which actually like I love even more than A. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, it's such it's a trauma-informed program before they were trauma-informed programs. It's amazing. Like so I love it too. Yeah. So I love that I can walk into a meeting, a 12 step meeting and bear my soul and those people love me. And it doesn't mean that they're going to like hug me because I actually don't like hugs. That doesn't mean they're going to like talk to me or we go out for coffee afterwards. It's different. It's just love. It's just, it's unconditional. That's why some people say you can make the group your higher power, right? So community, I think is really important and it's a community of shared goal community, right? Shared we're all trying to do this together. Um, service, I think, is very important um, because it gets you outside yourself. And also, it can be a really good way to cement community. Um, I know I'm a good talker, but I'm also an introvert. And I have trouble with the meeting before the meeting and the meeting after the meeting. Mm-hmm. I hate small talk. I'm really good at going deep. I'm not so good at like just chatting. Mm-hmm. And to do service work, in the a community is a way to meet people and talk to people and have a shared understanding and also to get outside yourself. Yeah. I, I'm always blessed by the people that ask me about sobriety. Like that is the gift to me to ask me about how I did it. It's a gift for me to hear their stories and that's service to hear someone else's story, to tell your story as a form of service. I also think in this political climate, that service is powerful because you can do, I I believe that activism is service too. Um, I believe like going and joining arms with my fellow humans to ask for things that we all deserve is a service. But also I believe that doing service in AA puts me in contact or in some other non-political context puts me in contact with people who maybe I would not always agree with. Yes. Yes. But and finds a point of commonality. So, and that is great for reaching beyond like the circle of recovery, right? Like just connecting you to the larger universe and also working on humility and working on resentment. Yep. 
Yeah. And then the spiritual or meditative practice of reflection. Because I think we can't get sober without having a sober accounting of who we are, a non-judgmental acceptance. And I think that's something that's been missing for me, quite frankly. Like this is what this incident has shown is that I've been doing self-examination and stopping, not opening a certain door, cleaning out a lot of closets. Uh-huh. Yeah. But, but not, not that, that closet. closet. Not that one. Uh-huh. You know, and maybe some other ones. Um, these all kind of, I think, build on each other, by the way, in this order, because I think that self-reflection and meditative practice, the meditative practice, you can do right away. But the reflection requires some foundation work. For sure. Because to get back to like the, I want forgiveness from my friends, something we talk about in AA all the time is that amends are not forgiveness. And also forgiveness, you can't ask for forgiveness unless you've forgiven yourself because you're, then you're asking for something that's really freighted. Mm. You're, you're putting a burden on the person you ask. You're saying, I need mm-hmm. this from you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I need you to forgive me. And actually, this is a social justice thing too, right? Yes. To go to a, a reparation. Exactly where I was going, um, which is that like <laughs> to be like, okay, here, you know, here, here, yo, we, we built a museum. We're doing some stuff over here. <laughs> we have a diversity and equity group. <laughs> like, we're changing our hiring practices. Now give us a cookie. Give us a forgive us yeah. our forgiveness. <laughs> give right. us our white liberal merit badge that Yeah. Can, and then can we just be done with it? Then we can it. be Thank colorblind, you. right? Like then we can just like, okay, we're done. It's all we're fixed. fixed. It's all fixed. It's, it's all, all done. Fixed now. <laughs> um and in some ways, like you know, like white people have to atone and like have to take a real self-inventory about this. Mm-hmm. And come to some kind of reckoning, maybe not full self-forgiveness, maybe that's really hard, but you can't be asking of it for someone else. Like you have to at least have the awareness that this is a burden that you have. When you ask for forgiveness, you're creating a burden on someone. This is one, I could talk to you all day, except we're getting to the top. Well, I think recovery is a really good framework for social justice. Yes. One, I I mean, the overlap is, it's like not even overlap. It's It's like the same. same. Yeah. It's the same. Um, it is a lot about like, so acceptance and again, sort of like community service reflection. Reflection. Absolutely. So I want to just finish up on that part about not asking for forgiveness, which gets us around to grace, right? Like that is where I have my work to do right now in dealing with my manic episode as a form of relapse my work right now is to accept grace and also to accept that I can be okay no matter what else happens. Mm. That I don't need a specific scenario. I don't need my friends. I think they will. I think I'm making a big deal out of this kind of like, I think they're probably just asking for some time out, but because it was hard for them to see me do this. It's an opportunity for me to realize that as good as it feels to have connection to any individual person, right? It is the more mystical connection and the connection to the group, again, if you want to make the group your higher power, that is the one that really feeds me. 
And that's just hard to believe sometimes. And that's why I get teary thinking about it. Yeah. I mean, you know, we get taught like, don't let your tears fall down your face. Um, And so I'm really grateful to you for letting us hear your tears on here. Um, Because I think it's just, you cry because it's magnificent and beautiful and powerful and huge and miraculous. That's worth tears. Ain't and it? I cry over the woman in me that has trouble accepting it. Like, I just want to tell that, that child in me, it's okay. You can have this. You can have this good thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I usually, I'm going to close us out. The name of the book is Unaddiction. And we made up the word unaddiction, six mind-changing conversations that could save a life. And we made up unaddiction to be like, what are the things we need to unlearn? What are the stigmas we need to undo? What are the conversations we need to uncover? And so if there was one thing about recovery or about addiction that you want to leave people with, that you want them to unlearn or this stigma you want us to be proactively undoing or this conversation you want us to be uncovering, what would you leave us with? I think in some ways, like when I think about what loved ones, when I loved ones are always, I get more questions from loved ones of addicts and alcoholics, of course, than I get from actual addicts and alcoholics. (laughs) And so I'm thinking of them. What I would like to transplant into those brains, and sometimes I forget it myself because I'm also the loved one of alcoholics, right? Is that um, you are actually the person in the worst position to help. Oh, wow. Because you love your you love so much and because you already have connections and you want, and probably what you want is the old person back or what Mm. things to be like they were before, Mm. which is completely understandable and human and also not helpful for the person who's trying to Mm. figure out who they are moving forward, who may be a little bit different. Yeah. And also there's no way that your love can't come with strings attached because mm. we're human again, human. My love for my addicts has strings attached. Right. Yeah. And so the most generous thing you can do is to try and create a boundary so that that person can get the help that they need from the people who can help them, which are the people who can give mm-hmm. unconditional love, which is usually in mm-hmm. the rooms of some program, some place. Like I was saying, like I can walk into any kind of 12-step meeting and get that unconditional love. And that's the love that can provide a structure and foundation and support for someone in early recovery. That of course you love that person. Of course, there's individual. Like I have specific pieces of advice about how you can support a loved one in recovery. They generally have yeah. to do with like just make it easy for them to not drink, <laughs> like or use or whatever. But um, you, unfortunately, it's a it's a humility thing too. You perhaps need to come to terms with the fact that as you may have brought this person into the world, but that you are powerless over their disease and. Yeah, 
and that there is such a thing as loving detachment and it sucks. And a lot of people, I think, criticize convention, like criticize, you know, AA and some recovery and some clinical talk because they think that that's tough love. And I, it's, it is not tough. It is not. It is, you can support your heart out, right? It's just figuring out what that boundary is between what that support is. Yeah. And love, love your heart out. Right. Um, and in some way you have that, this has to be what happened to me. My friends, actually, this is a good parallel again. Back when I got sober, my friends were kind of like, yeah, you need <laughs> like, we're done lovingly. I love you. And also you need something you need else. more than I can give you. And yes. I had to turn yes. to other things and thank God, thank God, literally thank God they were, they were there. So that is kind of what I would say to loved ones. I mean, what I would say to someone who's early on or thinking about getting sober is you can't, it is the miracle is available to you. It is yours. It is yours. I have the, every single person has it, has it available to them. And it is just a matter of finding finding that path, finding which miracle you want to accept. I love that so much. Anna Marie, despite the microphone's <laughs> best intentions, this will be heard. Thank you. Right. I, ha. I ha, hear you. She hears me great. I hear you. Thank you so, so much. This was wonderful. Very ther- You touched my heart. This very therapeutic well, for me. You know, it's funny. I used to kind of wave off that kind of compliment. Because for me, like, again, kind of adult child or alcoholic, like kind of like, oversharing is my thing. But um, it's funny, I'm writing a memoir and in the notes section of my manuscript, like what shows all the time up in the corner is a trauma response can also be a superpower. Yes. Yes. And so, yeah, like I may feel like sometimes oversharing is my trauma response and I get a little embarrassed about it. But then again, it can be a superpower too. 100%. And some people can't do this. Some people can't talk the way that I talk. 100%. We are, um, thank you so much for tuning in. And if you like this episode, please check out my book, Unaddiction, Six Mind-Changing Conversations That Could Save a Life. Available at Barnes & Noble, bookshop.org, Union Square and Company, Amazon, and wherever books are sold. If you liked this episode, please share it with someone you think may need to hear it. Also, please subscribe to this podcast and leave a five-star review. That helps us reach any and everyone who may be looking for support in the face of addiction.